0: and welcome to episode 74 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, however you are, whenever you are listening to this. Thank you so much. Hello from a hotel room in Bondi Beach. My guest today is Alexa Mead. She is an artist. We're going back to back with artists this week. You can find her on Twitter at Alexa, M-E-A-D-E-A-R-T, at Alexa Mead Art is her Twitter handle, She is an exceptional woman and she lives in a fun house that she built herself. So more about that in a moment. Thank you so much for being here. If you're new, hi, The 73 other episodes, lots of them good. I'm going to say all of them good, but you know, some people might find some good more more good than others, but you can subscribe uh, by just clicking in the podcast app in iTunes or if you're in uh, Android, I would use Pocket Casts. It's a fantastic app made by some Adelaide team. And you can subscribe to, uh, to this podcast there. Uh, or you can listen online at osherginsburg.com. I do have a mailing list, which you can find at osherginsburg.com. That's where I will let you know about upcoming episodes. I will never spam you. And that is also where you can write to me. If you want to write to me, I read every email you send me. I even respond to many of them. You can email me, send osheremail at gmail.com. That's it. Uh, so thanks to everybody that wrote in this week. I'm back in Sydney. And I've got to tell you, man, Australia really is the greatest country on the planet. There is. I know people listening from all over the world and I'm grateful that you're listening from wherever you are in the world. Australia is amazing. When you look at what the rest of the world is, what the rest of the world is dealing with, the challenges the rest of the world faces, not that this country is not without her challenges, but boy, this place is incredible. really is. We are so, so, so lucky to call this place home. It really is amazing. I am excited to be here. I'm very excited about getting stuck into another season of work, which uh, is great. I I work with some really cool people on a TV show called The Bachelor down here and I'm very excited about that. Uh, So yeah, getting stuck into that. Um, How are you doing? are you doing? Okay. Is everything all right with you this week? I hope it is. I hope whatever it is, is is going okay for you. I'm riding my bike like crazy at the moment, trying to work away at that extra weight those meds put on. Jesus. Holy moly. Well, I'm getting there. But boy, howdy. Uh, they weren't kidding <laughs> when they said one of the side effects was weight gain. Holy moly. But it's good. I'm grateful you're back in Sydney with her her rolling hills uh, and her spectacular scenery. I mean, I I went out, My I don't know if you follow me on Instagram, I'm on Instagram. Um, the baggage handlers that brought my bicycle over, I think they were using my bicycle as a loading ramp uh, or something and they bent the derailleur, the mechanism that changes the gears on the back of my bicycle. They bent it quite seriously. Uh, I needed to get it repaired so I couldn't go on my fancy road, middle-aged man road bike yesterday. But I have a commuter uh, bicycle, a real kind of like Ford F-150. It's like the ute of bicycles. <laughs> um, and I ride to work and back when I'm in Sydney. And so I took that out to do some hill repeats, which is basically uh, you ride up a hill as hard as you can. And then you recover and you roll down the hill and then you ride up a hill again as hard as you can. And you recover and you roll down. And I did that like five or six times. And I was doing the my hill repeats at South Head, uh, on the South Headland of Sydney Harbour. And so I'm uh, as I'm recovering, rolling down the hill, I'm watching, you know, 50 foot yachts coming into the headlands on full spinnaker and all the sailing ships, that out to sea and just, oh, so spectacular. Sydney is so spectacular. Uh, so not, not a bad place to get my sweat on, not a place to do, not a bad place to do my intervals yesterday. It was uh, it was pretty good. I might have to, I didn't go all the way to the bottom. I might have to go a little further down. Uh, try and get down to sea level, get another 50 metres of elevation in there. Uh, cyclists, I will be one one day. And speaking of uh, of cycling, I am absolutely aghast at what happened in Melbourne this week. There's a road in Melbourne in Brunswick in the northern part of the city called Sydney Road. It's a notorious black spot for cyclists and, and cars having accidents. Something like 85 accidents have happened there in the past year. But this absolutely tragic thing happened uh, just a few days ago um, where uh, a cyclist was traveling in the left-hand side of the lane trying to stay out of the way of traffic uh, in what is sometimes referred to as the bike lane people go oh that's the bike lane you can go over there but that's what cyclists refer to as the door zone where people just open their car doors directly into you and cyclists are often Travelling about as fast as traffic because it's actually much safer when you're traveling the same speed as traffic, you can maneuver a lot better and there's a lot more time to maneuver. And what happened is this cyclist, a 25 year old Italian man was riding. Somebody opened their car door directly into his path. He hit the car door, knocked him into the lane and a truck that was right there hit him and killed him just like that. Now, not only do I feel absolutely terrible for his family, but also the truck driver uh, just trying to do his or her job. And then, boom, someone's dead under the wheels of their vehicle. And the person who opened the car door, I'm sure they didn't mean to. But now they have to live the rest of their life knowing that that happened, they were involved. I mean, it's it'll take it'll take a half a second less if you're getting out of a car, passenger or driver. Take half a second, put your chin over your shoulder and look behind for a bicycle. I mean, could you imagine living the rest of your life knowing that one time you opened a car door into into a cyclist and either really grievously hurt them or possibly killed them? I mean, please, if you're listening to this anywhere in the world, check for cyclists. It's just, that's my absolute worst nightmare. My absolute worst nightmare. My thoughts go out to everyone involved. Super, super tragic and so easily avoidable. So easily avoidable. Boy, um, sorry to get heavy on you, but I just had to to talk about that. So on a lighter note, let me talk to you about my guest this week. We're doing another artist this week. We did one last week with Jasper Knight. We're doing another one this week with Alexa Mead. She is a remarkable artist that lives in East LA in a fun house. Yeah, a fun house. Her and her partner have built a fun house out of their house. We, we talk all about it. You can find her online, com M-E-A-D-E, and she's on Twitter at Alexa Mead art. Her story is very interesting for a few reasons, not just because she lives in a fun house and we talk all about how the things that she's built in her house to make her house a fun house. Yes, there really is a trapdoor with buried treasure in her house, uh, but also how not only how she found her way to being an artist, but that she left a really promising career in politics to become an artist. So if you've ever wondered what it is like to leave the job that everyone, including yourself, was expecting you to do for the rest of your life and succeed very well, to leave that career, to leave that job and pursue your creative vision, this one is for you this one is for you. Her story is very, very powerful. And the story of how she methodically went after her goal, her vision is truly inspiring. Whether you're an artist or not, whether your dream of leaving the current work you're in and pursuing something else is not art, it might be a completely different career altogether. Just listening to how Alexa went about it, how she methodically put herself to it and how she succeeded, super, super inspiring. Yes, we're doing back-to-back artists, but so rarely do we get to hear from people that make art, so I am happy to bring them to you. So enjoy your afternoon in the funhouse in the, the disco dance hall that is in her kitchen. Yes, she has a disco in her kitchen, which we talk all about. This is me and you and Alexa Mead. Enjoy. Hi, Alexa. Hi, Asher. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, Where are we?
1: We are in my house in Echo Park, which I'm turning into a fun house. And we're currently sitting in my kitchen closet, which doubles as my dining room and also my disco dance hall.
0: Yes, we're in East LA. Um, There's a bit of ocean noise in the background. I believe that's the five behind us.
1: That's the five freeway we are hearing.
0: We are hearing the five freeway, um, which is inescapable in Los Angeles, freeway noise. You just can't escape the sound of traffic in the city unless you live in a gajillion-dollar home.
1: I kind of like the white noise.
0: As someone who suffers from tinnitus, like I do as well. Yeah.
1: Okay, well, I don't have tinnitus, but I might develop it. You know
0: what I found last night? I found um, someone sent me 24 hours of YouTube, a 24-hour mix of Star Trek The Next Generation's Enterprise engine noise background ambience. Just that... (laughs) Just
1: going on for 24, 24
0: hours. hours? And then... Is
1: it all separate clips? Or just no, no, no. One? It's just
0: one loop that goes for a day. Then I found 12 hours of the Nostromo from Alien, the ship that they're on in the film, Ridley Scott film Alien, up, oh, in the background.
1: There was a while when I was actually kind of into listening to um, white noise, pink noise, brown noise, all these different yeah. types of...
0: Interesting, um, isn't it?
1: ...fuzzy sounds because if you put on um, special things in front of your eyes like ping pong balls cut in half and listen to white noise, it creates something called the Gansfield effect, which causes you to see weird visual things.
0: Now, have you experienced it?
1: I have, yeah. I got kind of bored, though.
0: How long did it take for it to kick in?
1: Uh, Maybe like 25 minutes. It was really hard not to fall asleep during that time.
0: Right. Because basically you are depriving your auditory and optical nerves of – stimulus. So they're left to make something up because we, our brains like to, we form patterns and we deduce finished sentences from parts of sentences that we, to basically, that's the analogy, I would say, like we see the head of a horse, we assume the rest of the horse is there. All right. So I'm assuming what happens with our brain with the lack of input and our ears with lack of input, just start making shit up. Exactly. Amazing. Yeah. I've ever- heard I've heard it can be intolerable for some people. They like just pull the stuff off their face and they they can't can't bear it.
1: Uh, it was pretty pleasant for me, um, but I also like sensory deprivation tanks. Have you ever done one? No, I've not. Okay, well, I did one in Venice, and I had like a ten p.m. Or it was like a nine p.m. appointment, and the place was closing at ten. And um, I decided that I would stay in there until someone knocked on the door to get me out, because most people after like twenty minutes just go totally crazy. And I was in there for what felt like forever. And I was like, okay, you know, it feels like it's been hours. And then finally someone knocked on the door and I felt really proud of myself for making it through like the full hour. And it turned out it was like 2 a.m. And the guy had forgotten me in there and locked up the shop and gone home and gone to bed. Oh, wow. And then was like, wait a minute, I didn't check. And was like <sighs> totally shocked to see somebody like stumble out of the sensory deprivation chamber.
0: <laughs> wow. You float in body temperature water?
1: Yeah. And the water is only like... 12 inches deep or something
0: would you were you like, did you get like kind of i've been in the bath too long wrinkly wrinkly skin
1: it wasn't so much wrinkly as like crusted with salt uh-huh. like you would have like water splash over your like chest or something and then uh when you get out there's like a quarter inch of salt crystals oh formed. to help
0: the floating yeah right really intense dead sea style. Yeah. Oh, dear. So you're turning your house into a fun house. Not many people get to do that. What kind of things are in your house? I've saw, I've seen a little bit. Now I've just I'll just describe to people. Um, I arrived a little early. Alexa said, "Wait a second. I'm just finishing up a few things." Hang out in the treehouse in the front yard. There's a treehouse in the front yard. Pretty lovely front yard. I walk up the front steps, which are different colors, multicolored, very very bright,
1: rainbow ordered.
0: Yeah, amazing. Red and yellow and pink and blue, purple and orange and green. And at the top of the stairs, there's a mirror. And if I look in that mirror, I can see into your bedroom.
1: Yeah, you can see zigzagged around several different corners to um, be able to talk to me as you're leaving the house while I'm still lying in bed. So we can make eye contact from like around corners far away and talk without having to raise our voices too much.
0: So you've hung mirrors throughout your house. So why?
1: Um, So this was my first project I did with Chris Hughes. And I want people to see out of every window in my Chris house. Chris is your partner. My uh, my partner Chris, who's who's helping me build all this stuff in the house and lives here here, is he's my a love.
0: Complete math genius.
1: He's a complete everything genius. Yeah. it's really
0: terrifying. He's a uh, yeah. He, he's a force of nature to stand in front of. He's like it's like standing in the you know those those wind turbine booths that they test structures in and they see if they can survive a hurricane. That's what it's like being in front of him and you, you realize that he's just letting, he's like holding the edge of a balloon and just letting out little bits because like if he you, if you unleashed, you just wouldn't be able to, your brain would melt.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, it's like consistent like brain melting at all times around him and it's really delightful. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, good for you for finding someone that yeah. um, that you you gel with that well. That's That's really lucky. But the two of you have built this system of mirrors so that you can
1: Oh, sorry, so I'll finish that. So we built this system of mirrors so that while I'm lying in bed, I can see out of every mirror in the house at the same... Sorry, I can see out of every window in the house at the same time. So it, like, doubles the number of windows. When the sun is going down, I can watch it on the opposite side of the room out of one of the mirrors if I don't feel like facing a window. Um,
0: so you can have the sun set in the east if you want.
1: Yes. <laughs> ah, exactly.
0: That's amazing. <laughs>
1: um, And then... The mirrors are on hinges so you can adjust them. And mm-hmm. like, while I'm doing dishes, I'll look in a mirror and I'll zigzag around a corner and I'll be able to talk to Chris while he's like sitting on the couch. And, you know, we're making eye contact. We can see each other's lips move so we don't have to yell across rooms.
0: Exceptional, exceptional. And we're sitting in the, it, this. this used to be, I'm guessing some sort of pantry or some sort of cupboard.
1: I think this was a pantry. Um, yeah. And it's an incredibly tight space. It's maybe like two and a half feet wide.
0: Yeah. My Um, elbows are touching each side, just so people know I'm sitting in a very, very small table.
1: Yes. And this is a small table that folds down. The chairs we're sitting on are really comfortable, and it's quite deceptive because they're actually fold-up chairs. And so when it's time to start the disco party, fold down the tables, fold the chairs, put them in the cubby, turn up the radio. I have speakers on either side of this small space at your height. Yeah. And then I uh, turn on the disco lights and... It gets into a pretty crazy party.
0: And there's cup holders in the wall.
1: There's cup holders for VIP bottle service. So if you look behind you, Asher, there's a bottle of champagne. There is. You take it down. Hang on.
0: When it's pulling down, it's got a uh, pipe cleaner around it. A it pink says VIP. Pipe cleaner. It's a, a pink pipe cleaner. It says VIP bottle service only. And it's a bottle of La Marco Prosecco, uh, sparkling. My goodness. That is, uh, it's uh, grown in Italy. There you have it.
1: Yeah, so we get pretty fancy in here.
0: Yeah, my word, that's and, exceptionally uh, fancy. Wow, you've so what kind? What kind of other, other things happen in this house? If there's disco parties that happen in former kitchen closets, what other oh, kind yeah. of things we'll happen? Oh have
1: like eleven people dancing in here, and they're pretty much like freak dancing, grinding. Like there's no space for air, but it's a great party in here. No doubt. Um, we have that. There's a trap door in the floor that I keep my buried treasure in.
0: I noticed that I did step over a trap door on the way in. Yeah, um, is so I remember you telling me vaguely, did, have you finished, you wanted to put a camera obscura in your house?
1: Oh, that was in my friend's garage, which oh. was my studio, which unfortunately he wants to turn the garage into a usable living space, so I had to take all my stuff out there. But um, I drilled a hole through the wall of the garage yeah. so that I could let just a pinhole of light in. And then yeah. um, I was putting prisms in front of it and lenses and creating all sorts of interesting optical effects on uh-huh. the wall.
0: Right. So, but this home in particular, you're living in, people modify their houses, that people will make a new kitchen, people will make a...
1: There's been no, like, permanent real renovations to this house, because I don't own it. I'm renting from my landlord who, like, lives on a boat in Australia. He's super awesome, but he is very hands-off with uh-huh. his approach. Um, so nothing's permanent, but it's all <laughs> super custom.
0: It is the most customized home I've ever been in. How does living and how does this living space inform your artwork?
1: It's like super playful in here. And so like as a result, I've started in addition to like building fun things for my house, just building fun things in my house. Like I have this spinner here that I'm using to fidget with. That is a combination of an arrow and a question mark. And so it's like make a decision and then it points to where I want to go.
0: Because you do like to, I know you, do, you gave me a wonderful gift the other night. Um, we've known each other, what, six weeks? And you gave me a great present uh, the day after we met. I woke up with heaps of anxiety. As you got me in the morning. Not many people get me in the morning because I live alone, uh, But you got me in the morning. How are you? I'm like, oh, I'm like really afraid for no reason. You went, here, play with this. And you'd, you'd built a toy the day before, which was cut out of Perspex. Um, Many, many shapes cut out of Perspex. And I just started playing and fidgeting with this thing. And it really helped. (laughs) It really helped.
1: Yeah. Like I'm designing this um, kind of like freeform puzzle. There's no correct answer. There's no wrong answers, many correct answers. And you just build these beautiful designs out of these shapes that all seem to like effortlessly fit together.
0: So at what point in your life did you first... I know you've got an you've got a very interesting path to how you became.
1: I do. A, I have more funhouse things I could talk about. There's more funhouse things. Oh let's let's talk
0: so more, more about funhouse. Fun house. House. <laughs> I've just realized that the the sound system that you've put in here has an eight track involved.
1: <laughs> it does, and it also has a tape cassette. And um, and
0: you got Houses of the Holy on cassette. Man, oh yeah. now we're talking. So when I have parties, the song in the remains disco. the same. That's the that's the killer first track right there.
1: So when I have parties in the disco kitchen. Um, djing i just switch between like radio cassette like eight track and so it flips do you back have and eight forth. tracks here uh i actually do have one i don't know where, where we
0: comment. should get you some eight tracks yeah please do we'll, we'll get you and some eight I tracks.
1: players broken but that one works in Ooh. the teal briefcase
0: what what other um what other funhouse things are there?
1: yeah so my tv um i like gutted out the insides of it i put a two-way mirror in the front some blinking LEDs of different colors. And I have a remote control where you could flip between different channels. So you're either watching like black and white static or color static. And then one of the channels is just a bright light bulb so that you can see uh, anyone who sticks their head in there. So it's like as if they're on TV.
0: So you've got, it's like an old television, like a big old cathode ray tube. Kids, back in the day, when you didn't have flat screens, we had to put this giant electron gun that just shot radiation at your at your ha- at your house basically and all your loved ones while you sat there <laughs> for hours watching it uh, and the boxes were really big and heavy and so you've pulled and often they were they were more seen as a piece of furniture than uh than something to view so they were built to fit in I guess with the the decor of the home and so this thing that's in your living room it looks very 50s. It looks very fancy. It looks very mahogany. <laughs> it,
1: it takes a lot of visual weight in the room, so like I better make it good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't watch TV or Netflix or anything, so that's the closest thing I have is blinking LED lights.
0: Right. So let's just – fair. There's we could probably go on for a while talking about your phone house, but it's fair to say that there, there isn't a wall or a space here that doesn't have something that you've modified or something that occupies your visual – brains would that be fair to say very fair (laughs) so then let me ask how does living in such a space inform the art that you make
1: um and i'm always like when i'm walking around and i see something that catches my eye because i'm like wait i thought i saw something else it'll give me like a little seed of an idea for something and for the past couple years it's been really frustrating because i'm like okay, it's really cool when light reflects in this way, but I don't know what I'm going to do with that. Mm-hmm. And now that I have this space, like whenever I get a seat of an idea, it's like, okay, I'm going to build something that I'll just have surrounding me that takes into account. And then creating all these little illusion things and feeds into like my broader work with illusions.
0: Yes, illusions. If we spent the other night at the Magic Castle, the famed Magic Castle in Los Angeles. And I love going to that place. Yeah, my yeah. friend
1: Simon Colonel had an amazing show.
0: He was remarkable. He made an entire deck of cards disappear in his hands and he was sat as far away from you as me, as far away as we're sitting right now.
1: Like two feet away in my tiny kitchen.
0: Two feet away in a tiny kitchen. He held four races on top of the rest of the unturned deck with his sleeves rolled up, rubbed his hands together and before 30 people in the room made it in, mm-hmm. the other 48 cards vanish in front of our eyes.
1: He also solved a Rubik's Cube with his mouth.
0: Yeah, he solved a Rubik's Cube with his mouth, which was pretty cool. I was pretty impressed with that. Uh, you took a um, fairly unconventional route to becoming an artist, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I was like an arty kid growing up, but I got a lot of discouragement in terms of trying to make that into a career.
0: So what's an arty kid?
1: Uh, I like drawing a lot during class, and I'd always get in trouble for that. Um
0: no one ever I, said, "Hey, that's actually pretty good."
1: Oh, I was like the like artist in the grade. That was like my identity until oh, I. Okay. Yeah, but that was like until I turned thirteen and became like a radical vegan, like activist, and like <laughs> uh, yeah. got super into politics and anti-war marching and such.
0: Why, why you know? Because I, I, I only eat plants as well. Why. Uh, w- what happened at 13 that you went, that's it, I don't want to eat animals anymore?
1: Um, so I'm like kind of, I don't want to say embarrassed, but I don't talk about very often that the reason why I became a vegan was because I was obsessed with the musician Moby. And in his um, like CD uh, album art, like behind it, it had a description of like all the reasons why you should go vegan. Mm-hmm. And I read it and I was sold and I thought he was
0: cute. Well, look, it does, don't be embarrassed and it takes it it's and it's a thing that i struggle with you know with my own mental health is it's and it's the thing that's the crux of that Christ, the incredible christopher nolan film inception once you know something you can't unknow it once something's in your brain it's a conscious willing decision to no longer be you know acting upon this information so once you know where the meat comes from once you know what those sentient say um sapient animals experience it's hard. It's real hard to to continue eating that way. And some people are vegan and they go back, and that's totally cool, but they go back. I'm gonna th- I, I'd am going i like to think the people that I've met that have gone back, they're so much more. Um, they're like the guy in the opening scene of Last of the Mohicans who thanks the great spirit before he plugs the deer with the arrow. He's like, oh, great spirit, I'm going to take this child of yours because I have to feed my child, but we thank you for providing <laughs> and (laughs) and then he takes the deer um so yeah so you're 13 the arty vegan kid in school that must have been yeah were you an outcast
1: oh yeah totally (laughs) I mean I was like really nerdy didn't fit in at all so I think my rationale was like well if I purposely make myself not fit in then I can't be blamed for you know not being able to fit in
0: teenage logic works every time doesn't it (laughs) I
1: had the big baggy jeans and like I was all like you don't like me because I'm
0: different Colored hair and piercings?
1: no colored hair because I have natural strawberry blonde hair, and I'm very thankful for that
0: right. And did you take art? Uh, did you take classes?
1: I took some art classes. um the most like important one I took actually was when I was like sixteen in this like summer program, I did some painting, and like that's where I've learned everything pretty much that I've like formally been taught about painting
0: mm-hmm. but the politics thing took over what What happened?
1: Yeah, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and, like, I'm surrounded by it. My parents had nothing to do with, like, the political arena. Um, My dad actually had been an art major in college Mm -hmm. and had dreamed of being an artist and then just, like, failed miserably in the profession and went into the family business of being an accountant. And so he'd, like, learned firsthand that, like, that's not something viable to make a living off of. And so he was, like, extra critical of me um, wanting to make art because of that.
0: And you were a teenager when he was giving you these critiques?
1: Teenager and then also after I'd started painting, but um, painting professionally on people. Um, But then it's actually kind of like a sappy story, if you don't mind me getting into it.
0: Honey, we got all the time you
1: want. (laughs) Yeah. So um, my... Because
0: here's the thing. Everyone listening has got a dad. Okay. Or has had a dad or knows of the idea of a dad. And everyone listening knows what it is to have that approval or disapproval. Right. And... When we hear, we only know our experience, and then we only really—the only other experience we compare it to—is the experience, the limited experience of our friends. But mostly, what we see in movies, which isn't real. So, the more that I think we hear what other people's experiences are, the more we go, "Oh, actually, my, oh, I'm all right. This person had it way better or worse than than me." So, please. All
1: right. Um. So, my father's always been like super like, resentful of his past trying to make it as an artist. He, like, does some, like, sketching while he's on the phone of, like, you know, geometric shapes, but he doesn't really make any art at all anymore. Um, and then after I graduated from college and decided I wanted to be an artist, he was incredibly critical on me, you know, saying, you know, in not nice words about my stuff being not good. Um, and that, you know, it was a waste of my time and all these things. And then several months later, his father was dying, and... um And he was, like, an old man. He was in his late 80s. And my father realized that he'd, like, never quite felt um, satisfied with his relationship with his father, especially because he'd wanted to be an artist and didn't get any encouragement from his father and instead went into the family business working, you know, with my grandfather to do accounting. And um, something in him just changed. And he realized that, like, this was his opportunity to fix that thing that he had regretted in his own um, father. And so he started coming down to the studio and, like, making art with me. And we started making art together. And, like, it got him, like, re-inspired. And, like, he would start calling me up from work, like, excited about ideas he had. He'd be like, what if, like, you painted two people? Think about it. And, like, it's really cute and sweet. And he's still, like, my number one biggest fan. And it it means so much to me.
0: The day that he... Changed? Was it a gradual change, or was this? Something there changed? was
1: actually kind of a day in which he did change, and it was when he got particularly bad news about his father's health, and um, then he came down to the basement and joined me.
0: Did you like? Who are you, and what did you do with the guy that used to say no all the time?
1: Pretty much, yeah. But I was very like welcoming of it. I didn't, you know, do anything to push him away.
0: When you studied at university, though, you didn't study art, did you?
1: I studied political science. And I, you know, continued on this political nerddom, like, I'd interned for congressmen and senators for like four summers. I'd, um, What's, that? What's that look like? <laughs> wearing a business suit every day and uh, sitting in front of a computer. All I
0: know about it is watching Veep and House of Cards. That's all I know.
1: Oh, I actually haven't seen that.
0: Oh, babe, you're going to love it.
1: I shit. I'm not really a TV watcher.
0: House of Cards is... I hear it's good. ...total beltwayman just craziness.
1: Um... Yeah, but I was, like, super excited to be involved in politics and I'd, like, dreamed of maybe someday running for Congress or something.
0: Now, did did the vegan thing have anything to do with this past? Did the idea of, like, I can be active and change and I can exert my will upon the world around me by a choice I make?
1: That was a big part of it. I mean, I was really into veganism. I was also into um, raising awareness about the genocide in Darfur. And I was really against the war in Iraq and I saw um, – Learning about, like, the political system is, like, the way to affect change. Mm. Um, but after, like, so long, you know, on Capitol Hill responding to constituent mail that I knew the congressman would never read and everything, it felt very disempowering. Mm. And then in 2008, like, when I was kind of on the verge of saying, okay, I don't know that I want to do politics anymore, I thought that I'd go out to Colorado and um, try politics outside of DC, and instead congressional politics, presidential campaign politics with the Obama campaign Mm -hmm. doing press. And there, I realized that it really wasn't that much different except there were just new buzzwords of hope and change. And I felt even further disheartened while working on the campaign. Um, I was supposed to take off the first semester of my senior year of college to continue working through election day. And I just couldn't bring myself to do it. I went back to school I finished up my major in poli sci but I took as many sculpture classes as I could
0: (laughs) and at what I mean there's many people that are listening that have probably had a moment where they've gone oh man I'm studying the wrong thing or oh man I'm in the wrong job or oh man I'm in the wrong relationship what was the what was the day when you went okay I'm gonna have to find something else
1: Uh, yeah, I did You know, this is actually part of a story that I haven't told before publicly. Um, so during the summer that I was in Colorado working on the Obama campaign, I was really sick with a thyroid problem. And I'd had to get radiation treatment. And I told the campaign that, like, you guys need to square away what is going on with my health insurance, because they told me as part of my job benefits that I would get insurance and benefits and all these things. And they kept on delaying, having me sign paperwork, saying that you know there were issues in Chicago or whatever. And- I'll just
0: explain that in America, it's not unlike it's not like Australia. In America, the employer takes care of your health insurance. In Australia, it's uh, upon the you yourself to find insurance. So, it's an important part of finding a job is looking to see the benefits. And when people say benefits, they mean health insurance. So, so please continue. Yeah,
1: and part of the reason why I took. Um, the job and decided that I would take a semester off from school is that if, um, you know, they provide me health insurance, then I wouldn't have a gap in coverage. Whereas if I didn't get insurance from the campaign and I was no longer in school, I wouldn't be covered under, you know, the school's insurance or whatever. Um, so it was towards the end of the summer and I was thinking, like, I really got to get back to Vassar, but I don't know, you know, um, and... Then I, like, really confronted my boss for, like, the 30th time about, like, what's the deal with my health insurance? And she was like, it's fine. Trust us. And I was like, okay, well, if you don't let me know by the end of the day, like, I need to get on a plane tomorrow to go back to school because the semester's starting. And then uh, in, like, the same conversation, she was like, you're on stipend, not salary. You don't get health benefits. And this woman had been, like, leading me along all summer, working, like, 80 hours a week. um, And... It's like, you guys know how sick I was. Like, I was leaving the office in an ambulance, like, some days. It was just really disheartening. And I was like, this is so fake and I have to get out of here.
0: That's tough. Yeah. That's really tough because to work on any political campaign, you've got to be so behind the message of the party that you're supporting because you'll be questioned on it and have to represent those policies to every single person in your life. You can't just – you're not showing your allegiance with with an anonymous vote. You're showing your allegiance with a very public um, thing. That would have been hard. It would have
1: been really catastrophic because my medical bills that semester were really terrible. But, you know, the fat red problem has been straightened out.
0: I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. But at that point, you're like, it doesn't matter which side I barrack for. It's a bit broken.
1: Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. And so then I was like, all right, new direction. Um, and I was thinking like, okay, I really want to do something artistic, but it's, you know, like my father says, art is a hobby, not a career. It's impossible to find a job, do something useful. I need to find something that has health insurance. So I decided that I would become a furniture designer. And I started taking all these sculpture classes at Vassar. I, um, took Vassar, Vassar college. It's a small liberal arts school in upstate New York.
0: And what's liberal arts?
1: Um, it's like not a school that trains you to do one specific like thing, Uh, like, you know, husbandry or something, but one that offers more broad-based, like, education um, that's more rounded. Okay. Yeah. Um,
0: Sounds like a fun campus to be on.
1: Oh, it's totally fun. It's clothing optional, actually. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yep. We have um, the first school er um, erotica magazine. Okay. Yeah. It's a fun place. Um, What was I saying? Oh, you were
0: talking about you were doing furniture design at Vassar College.
1: Oh, yeah. So because it's a liberal arts school, it's not like a vocational school. They don't offer furniture design. So I had a um, professor sponsor me and I did an independent study. And so I would just like come into the sculpture studio and build furniture every day and hope to get credit for it. Um, and I was looking into applying to like furniture design schools. And then um, I came up with this really cool idea for a project. And I wanted to see where that would go.
0: Uh-huh. Yes. And that's the project that was the... The cornerstone of your work that people come to know you for,
1: it is um the project idea first came from a sculpture class assignment i had and we had to make a sculpture of a landscape that was not a sculpture of a landscape like the prompt was incredibly confusing and contradictory and i came up with the idea of okay what if in like i take a real landscape and then i paint the shadows on it and that's a way of describing the space around it without actually being the space around it um i proposed that idea to my teacher he didn't like it instead i ended up making a cardboard hill with like a half of a house behind it that kind of created an illusion of a full house um not the tv show but uh yeah but that idea just kept kicking around in the back of my mind and i just had to see what would happen if i painted on shadows
0: and what was the when was the first time you did that
1: um, well, the first time I had this like seed of the idea it was in September two thousand and eight, and then it was in sorry it was in like May two thousand and nine, like a week before graduation that I painted shadows on my friend, and um I realized all of a sudden that by creating a mapping of the light in three d space, I was able to make my friend look like a two dimensional painting
0: from a singular light source.
1: I was using a singular light source at the time, yeah, but now I can paint it with multiple light sources or. I actually have figured out a bunch of other tricks of perception mm. with 2D and 3D space that um I don't even have to follow shadows necessarily to make things look flattened. Right,
0: And so you you painted you painted your friend. Now this isn't like, you know, airbrushed, you know, there's I always get really uncomfortable when I'm at an event and there's a body painted woman there when some a tattoo artist with an airbrush gun has um you know, body painted, uh, you know, body painted someone and then there's a a woman like basically nude. Well, not basically, she is nude, but she's got, I don't know, like a company logo painted on her or something. It freaked me out, man. It freaked me out. It's
1: not my thing. So if you look through like all of like the hundreds of paintings I've done on people, you will notice that there are like zero sexy naked women involved in it. Um, You know, I paint on like old men or like, uh I'll I have made one self-portrait in which I look like a little bit sexy. Um, but I've also made self-portraits in which I've like exaggerated the roles in my stomach and made myself look fatter and older. Um you can find those somewhere online if you dig hard <laughs> enough. <laughs> but it's not so much about the body as a sexualized thing as just like portraiture and we're all human.
0: Look, because there there's something as well about about your work. No, and- hang on a sec. Had you ever seen anyone do this kind of work before?
1: I'd never seen anyone do this before. And when I first started it, I had no idea that it would end up like this. I was just interested in shadows. And I thought of paint as like the easiest way to communicate that. Um,
0: but you hadn't painted since you were 16. How did you go?
1: Yeah, I like, well, I had all these mental blocks about painting because I was really overly perfectionistic when I would try painting as a teenager. And if I couldn't do... um. It exactly as I wanted to like I would just like keep obsessing on it for you know hours overworking it until finally it matched the image of my mind which mm-hmm. always turned out less exciting than you know I wanted it to um so I was like I don't have what it takes to be a painter and I'd like never painted again after that and then I had this idea of putting paint on shadows and because it wasn't about creating like a picture to mimic reality it was like painting directly on top of reality it unlocked some weird mental block I had Uh and allowed me to start painting again
0: and did all the I mean there's a lot of technique there's a lot of blending of color there's a lot of that kind of stuff that's a little you know it's it's fairly technical did that did you remember that stuff from when you were 16 or did you have to figure it out as you went
1: I remembered a couple of things about um trying not to make my colors get too murky when I was painting um, but yeah, here's
0: my study in brown and here's the other one that's kind of brown. <laughs> and over here there's some brown.
1: Yeah, that was exactly what all my paintings yeah. looked like as a teenager because I was like, I have to blend this. I have to get this smooth. But one of the things about my um, style of painting in 3D space is that like, I have to move really quickly because oftentimes I'm painting on people or food, so there's no time to get bogged up, bogged down and getting the shading just right.
0: Yeah, you can't leave a canvas for a week in the corner and just work on it when it comes to you. You've got so many hours or minutes with that person. Yeah.
1: And also too, like another reason why I can't overwork it too much is that once I put down a brush stroke, I've covered up my original reference point. So like, I'll never know what color your cheek was before I put you know, my bright pink stroke on it. And so when I'm done painting you, if I decide something doesn't look right and I want to fix it, well, how do I know that what I fix it with will be better than what was based upon direct observation? because um, sometimes you can't really trust your eyes and what you see when you're painting and like it's How let me find a better way of explaining that um i'm not going to be any more accurate in like the second passover than i was in the first passover in which i had the full information of what was there before i covered it
0: that's a lot of faith in your like raw creative instinct
1: it, it's a tremendous amount too because it it's actually frustrating cause sometimes um well, when I make my painting, I then photograph it, capture in the photos, the model showers, it's all done. I can't go back in and touch it up. And then I'll like look at the photos later and I'll see that like I missed painting the ear or something or there's one stray brush stroke that just kind of like kills it for me and it'll be in every single photo. And um, there's nothing I can do about that because I'm not going to go into Photoshop and touch it up because if it's like, you know, 1% Photoshopped, it's Photoshopped. Yeah. Um, I'll do color correcting, but I won't paint into the photo um and so then that does get really frustrating because it's like ah, my instinct was wrong there but that's part of the beauty of the work
0: so when you first started how often were you painting on people were you was it hard to find people or like what did you do
1: it was incredibly hard to find people um I was very secretive about what I was up to not because I was like oh I have something here but more because I was really embarrassed and ashamed (laughs)
0: it's like <laughs> where did the embarrassment and shame come from?
1: Yeah, well, like all my friends knew me as this like super political kid. And then after graduation, they were like, Cool, like are you gonna go work for the White House? Or are you going to like go work in Congress? And uh, I would be like, Yeah, I'm applying for jobs because I didn't want to sound like that lunatic who just said, Fuck it, I'm gonna be an artist.
0: And so what did you practice who did you practice on?
1: I did most of my practices on um, food that I stole from my parents' kitchen. And during that time, I wasn't really making any money and I couldn't afford to go to a thrift store and buy props. And so it was mostly things I would acquire sneakily from the house.
0: So you're, you're applying your brushstrokes to, to food?
1: Yeah, so like onto um, grapefruits and meat and eggs. I tried painting on plants, live plants, but they would start wilting under the weight of the paint and I don't really have any pictures of those up. But I should reapproach that.
0: And what about about your own skin?
1: I'd paint on myself, but, like, it was um, really hard when I hadn't yet had any practice painting on people in general to just start immediately with myself. Because when I'm painting on a person who isn't me, I'm able to take a step back, look at it from different angles, and just sit and stare and space out. But if I'm painting on myself, I mean, I can move the mirror around, but I can't, like, take a look at the broader view because I am the artwork.
0: So... This, your desire, like, eventually that embarrassment and shame had to break down. Eventually, you knew you had something, there must have been a feeling inside you that became greater than embarrassment and shame when you started showing other people. Yeah.
1: Um, it was mostly like, I, it, it took me a long time to own the term artist because, you know, I hadn't sold anything yet, I hadn't exhibited anything yet. And so, for all I knew, is was just me calling myself an artist was just using a euphemism for saying that I was unemployed. And... Don't
0: worry, it's the same thing with people who call themselves musicians or DJs.
1: <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. But it's like a really incredibly <laughs> scary... Thing.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Vulnerable. I'm place. <laughs> and, <laughs> um and so I had like my major like building confidence when I met this guy who worked at International Arts and Artists. His name's David Furchgott, And he took a look at my artwork and you know appreciated it. And I asked him if he could mentor me. And he's like a 65 year old man and so I'd go into his office every week or so with new pictures of what I'd been working on we'd sit down and he would give me amazing just like general life advice and confidence boost and I am so thankful for him because um, I wouldn't have been able to do this without his encouragement.
0: So what arts and art is what is that?
1: Um, it's an, an organization that arranges international art exhibitions so like if there's going to be like a show of Iranian photography they, like, figure out where in America it will tour. Okay. So it's not things that would directly, like, affect my artwork, but more just kind of...
0: How did you find him?
1: I'd met him at an art show opening. In um, International Arts and Artists, there's this, like, Hillier Art Space that's downstairs where they have some art shows.
0: And you met him there and you just proposed to him, hey, can I come in and talk to you about my painting?
1: Actually, the way it worked was... um, my boyfriend at the time was interested in renting out the space for, like, a private event. And um, as, like, a non like, arts organization, like, any anytime that they could get a private event space rental, they would get, like, super excited because it was, like, free money kind of. And so my boyfriend had asked to schedule an appointment with him to talk about it. And then during the meeting, he was like, oh, like, you know, my girlfriend makes amazing artwork. You should check it out. And he showed him on his phone, and he was impressed. And then, you know gave me permission to email him and asked to meet with him.
0: Wow. And so what were these meetings like?
1: Uh, They would last for like hours. And he had these big bookshelves with like all sorts of art books on them, um, mostly like catalogs of museum shows he'd worked on like over the past 40 years. And, um, you know, I would show him a picture and be like, oh, this reminds me of whatever. And then he'd pull down a book and then we'd look through this art book together. And
0: um, Sounds like... Like that's your first year of art school right there.
1: Kind of, yeah. I mean, he uh, he was like more in the world of sculpture rather than painting, but... Well, you
0: do transcend. Your work transcends that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think of it more as like installation, like 3D art than painting, really. Yeah.
0: And how has the way you came to painting, it's not a traditional way that you came to painting and it's not a traditional way of learning how to paint I'm um, besides these, I mean, even just sitting down with someone and having them talk you through the history of things, what has that given you that someone, an artist who perhaps went down the more traditional route, what has that given you different from them?
1: And it's definitely liberated me from like looking at uh, like the ground floor step as like the foundation for then this is where you take your next step from. Cause most painting is thought of as something that happens like on a canvas or surface and then you figure out, okay, well, what am I going to paint on the canvas? You don't think about what am I going to paint in real life or something else. And so it's kind of like dislodged that notion for me. And then also another thing that's really cool about my technique, which I haven't really spoken about because it's, um, it's maybe a little bit technical, but it's almost like painting without drawing. Because like, let's say I'm going to paint like this table and chairs right here. Um, When I paint the table brown and like wood and the chairs black and take a photo of it, everything is going to be in perfect perspective, no matter what, because it's real things in 3D space. When you take a photo, the chair that's farther away will look smaller. But if you're making a painting, you have to draw out the perspective correctly and you have to make sure that you put, you know, four legs on the chair. Whereas for me, it's more about capturing the light rather than um, defining the uh, where the things sit in the plane.
0: Capturing the light or capturing the shadow?
1: Capturing the light and shadows. The gradient of light.
0: What is it about shadows?
1: I I first came really into shadows when I was studying abroad in Denmark. And like during the summer, like... Political science? Some, oh, yep. Studying European Union political science. Wow.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah man.
1: <laughs> I was it's such a nerd. I, no, like, not at all. But really isn't that, here's in- the
0: thing. I, I look at the European Union. I spent a lot of time in the Netherlands. I'm working at a school over there, a business school. Isn't it wild that with one economic goal they were able to unite this unbelievable disparate region with 400 languages or 200 languages, oh, no, 50 languages, 200 million people, something colossal, all right? And then you look at uh, somewhere like the, the United States, which has similarly disparate cultural differences between the states, and yet we're just so here... Like we're just so at each other's throats. Like you go down to Missouri, it's it's you may as well be in a different planet to being somewhere like Boston. You know, it's it's yeah. it's amazing that they could get their shit together.
1: That's pretty amazing. It's. I feel a... like you and Chris should have a conversation about that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, you're in Denmark. Sorry, shadows. Oh yeah, I'm in Denmark.
1: The shadows really captivate me. That's also where I had um, my best friend. There was this furniture maker named kim nielsen um who now lives in paris and goes by kim kirk and makes like amazing like fine artwork and um he was the one who got me interested in like the idea of being a furniture designer actually Uh and being like surrounded by danish design and then also just really interested by shadows it was like early. can
0: make a chair the danish
1: oh yeah (laughs) They, they certainly can and after that i started building chairs
0: yeah right yeah so was there a day that you went oh my god that shadow is more beautiful than the cathedral was there that day
1: uh, you know, I'd always go on the street and take tons of like pictures of things that caught my eye. And I realized at the end of the day, they were mostly shadows. Like, um, you know, a staircase with a railing and the shadow on the staircase was a zigzag.
0: Right. What kind of camera were you lugging around?
1: Oh, I wasn't a photographer back then. It was just like a little point and shoot. It wasn't anything that I took myself seriously with.
0: All right. right. shooting film or digital? Digital. Digital. Yeah, right. So what day, was there a day that you realized, you know what, this this might kind of work out?
1: With the paintings on people? Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, I was um, – the summer after I graduated from college, I was interning at this art gallery in D.C., and I um, brought in some pictures of my artwork I'd been working on to show, like, you know, someone else who worked there. And he was like, oh, man, this is dope as shit. This is dope, dope. And I was like, wow, this caused a big reaction in him, like – And, you know, it made me think, okay, well, maybe I got something here. And um, actually, the best advice I got early on was that, like, when I first graduated from college, I was working on a million art projects. I didn't find my identity as an artist as, like, I'm painting on people and things. That was just one of my, like, 12 art projects I was interested in. I was, like, squeezing out tubes of toothpaste, and I was, like, putting uh, paint on things and then, like, making imprints of them on paper. Um, I was playing with optical illusions in other ways, actually, too. But anyway, so when I had my first meeting with David Fritschkopf from International Arts and Artists, and I showed him through my whole portfolio of art, he was like, okay, wow, that's like a lot of stuff. It looks like it came from like 10 different artists. Why don't you spend the next two months like focusing on developing a specific body of work with one of them and just see where you can go with depth rather than like so much breadth at the moment. And I told him, I was like, I don't want to do that. I have so many ideas. I can't, you know, hold myself back and narrow it down. And he was like, okay, I will make a deal with yourself. Like say, you will only do that for two months. And then after that, you can just go back to doing everything you want in the world. And then we went back through my presentation of art again He said, okay, like which ones are you interested in exploring? Why? And, you know, we get to the toothpaste and he says, can you spend two months doing this? And I was like, Hmm, probably not. And then when it came to the early paintings of the people, um, You know, he was like, I really think you have something here. You know, it's your decision, like, what you feel like captivates you and you want to explore. But, like, you know, I think this has promise. And so I went out from there. and
0: For two months you went.
1: Yeah, I went crazy, like, every day, like, painting a different thing. Oftentimes not a different person because I couldn't get my hands on enough people. But um, that's when I've actually built up the vast volume of my art portfolio still.
0: Right. In that... um, in that time though you met you've met some you met some people that didn't mind getting painted on regularly.
1: My younger sister was my most frequent model, and uh, she still models for me a lot, but she's also one of um my least appreciative models. appreciative is a wrong word she's like a very begrudging model uh-huh. um, she'll only do it if I promise to buy her a sandwich at Moby Dick's house of kebabs afterwards and um it's She reminds me throughout while painting her, saying, you know, don't forget you owe me a sandwich.
0: Moby Dix, you'll let your sister paint on you for one of our sandwiches. Yep. (laughs) That's the t-shirt right there. (laughs) Tell me about the older gentleman that you used to paint on regularly.
1: Oh, man. To me, um, I met him at a Halloween party with, like, college kids. And I was like, what is this older guy doing here?
0: Like, He's he's, old, right?
1: uh, Yeah, I mean, he's, like, late 60s, I think. He's not as old as I painted him to look. He's... He's amazing. And he like was such a character, like life of the party. And I was like, this is amazing. This guy clearly has got like something amazing going on. If he's comfortable one showing up at this party and to being like the coolest person here. Um and he like was an antique stealer on the side, slash I don't know what else he really did. But um yeah, I had an art show and I needed a model in a pinch, and I called him up at the last minute, and asked, you know, if he could come over on a Tuesday and be painted. And then he ended up being, like, the man on the Metro. Uh
0: Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, which is actually a story about that, too. Yeah? Yeah. Um, So one of my friends told me that there was this art show that was happening in D.C. and that he could get me into the show as an exhibitor. And I kept emailing him leading up to the show saying, like, okay, what's my participation like? You know, what time can I set up? How big is my space I can paint in? And he kept telling me, you know, he'll get back to me. And then uh, finally on the day of the art show, he tells me, Actually I never asked the gallery director because I was too shy and he doesn't know that you're in this show and so you're not in the show. And I was incredibly embarrassed because like I'd sent out emails to like all my friends and families being like, I have this amazing, you know, art show opportunity. You have to come see me at this gallery. Um and I'd painted this old man like that day, like in anticipation of going to my art show. And um I like
0: so you'd, paint, it, you'd painted him already with the idea I, that you would have a background that you would then paint while people were in the gallery.
1: Yeah. Well, I painted a background actually in my studio at home, and then my idea was that I would bring the background with me. But then, you know, I find out that that is not the case, and I'm debating whether or not I should, you know, show up uninvited. And then it would have been heartbreaking. I know, yeah. And then I told my parents that, like, okay, you know, it's time to get to my art show. I didn't tell them that it had been canceled or had never existed. And I was like, all right, you know, we got to go. And they were like, uh, oh, you know, I don't think I feel like driving right now. And I was like, what? Like, we had agreed that, you know, you were going to take me because, yeah. And um, my mom's like, if you really want to go, I guess you could take the Metro. And I was like, I can't go on the Metro with one of my paintings and show up at this art show where I'm not even invited. Like, and so I get on the Metro with him and I'm absolutely mortified. And, you know, I have my camera on me and people are looking at him and like checking him out, like kind of in awe and amazement. And so I just start taking some pictures and I'm like, oh my God, this subway ride needs to end ASAP so that I can like get to the art show and like pretend like I belong here. And it turned out that that was like my greatest art show opening of all time, like on the subway, you know, that's one of my most famous pieces. And like, I get to the gallery and show up and the gallery director has no idea who I am, but he likes this painted man. And I become like, the talk of the art show and everyone is super into it and so it's like well i might as well have been on the list of official artists but um it took a lot of like guts what a to day show
0: up. what a day yeah what kind of emotion that's intense
1: yeah especially too, like spending this whole like emotional journey with this like older man that i had never spent time with before
0: and but he's super cool life at the party so yeah did he, he offer was... you words of encouragement along the way
1: Oh, he did. He was really sweet.
0: Because would have been, you would have had to keep him up to up to date. He would have heard, hang on, I'm getting painted for a show I'm leaving a part of.
1: He actually, so, like, it's been a really weird life experience for him because his um, face has been, like, everywhere. And he's, like, gone, like, worldwide, like, famous almost. And he's made business cards for himself that have that picture of, you know, the man on the Metro on the back of them and, then you know, his name on the other side. Not saying, like, Timmy artist, but just, you know, yeah. as this cool thing. And so he was traveling in Italy in this small town and he gave someone his business card and um, someone was like, oh my God, I've seen this picture. You're that man? And he was like, yeah. And then they like called all of his friends in this like small Italian village and they'd all seen this piece of artwork and they like held a party for Timmy in Italy.
0: You've said that if you don't, that you've said I have to create art. What does it feel like if you you can't? What does it feel like when you can't
1: Well, okay, I should preface it with like I go through phases. Like sometimes it's like pouring out of me and I can't stop it. Other times I'm just like staring at the wall for ages. But when I'm inspired, if I can't make art, it's like, ooh, it feels like I'm wearing a really tight like jacket or something and like I can't breathe fully. And, um, My mind will get in this like incessant loop of the idea, because I'm like, "Don't forget this, like when someone tells you their telephone number and you can't take it down, and so um I will do like whatever I can to get to that moment where I can actually start making it um, I'll be very socially rude and you know flake on all of my commitments when I just have to make something
0: and what's it feel like when you finally unleash
1: oh it's it's the most amazing feeling like. I'll, you know, I'll have a seed of an idea and then I'll start executing it and I'll realize, realize wow, that sucked. That had no promise. But now I'm excited to create something and then I go absolutely wild and just make all sorts of fun things.
0: When you get that, because that all oh, that sucked is the thing that used to stop you in your tracks. What changed?
1: Uh, I realized that like so much of my work and like the projects that I look back at with the most like, pride they started as small ideas that um I didn't think like had any potential like you know painting on shadows I didn't expect that to launch like this big career in the art world um and so what'll happen is I'll do a little experiment it won't pan out but I'll make something else and whatever and then like a year later I'll remember that little like seed of something I made and find actually the right way to incorporate it into something completely different and had I not done that initial little experiment, I wouldn't have been able to arrive at this later but project.
0: I guess what I'm tra- saying is like, wh- you, you used to put brushes down. You used to stop, you used to walk out of the room. What, what now pushes you, oh, that first thing I tried sucks. What, what now gets you to the, but while I'm here, or now i have opened the floodgate, what changed?
1: <gasps> I guess like so much of my work is really just play driven and I'm really eager to throw stuff away. Like, not to, like, permanently, like, trash it, but be like, you know what? This didn't work. Rather than forcing it and beating it over the head and trying to overwork it to make it fit some idea of what it should be, I'm just going to, like, put that completely aside and now work on this other thing over here. And it's usually while working on that other thing that I figure out the problem solving in my head that made the other thing unsuccessful. Um, and so I see, actually, that working on these other projects is a way of me working on massaging out that original idea, whether I'm aware of it or not.
0: So you've relaxed a bit about the initial failure and you see the initial failure as something different entirely now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd say like, I, I approach every project with like no expectations that it'll turn out well. And then when it does like start going right, then I get like really obsessed with it and make like a million things related to it. Um, like that toy that we had talked about that I made, that's these shapes, that's like a puzzle I got. On this like huge wave of like ideas for what I could do with those shapes, including like bath toys, carpet tiles, cereal, and so I you know cut out giant foam carpet tiles and medium foam bath toys and tiny tiny foam like fake lucky charms in those shapes and it's just like, well, you know, see where this goes and it's like who knows like maybe because now I'm thinking about like breakfast cereal and colorful shapes, maybe that'll inspire me later on down the road to make some other type of breakfast cereal because now it's within the realms of possibility i've opened that first step to you know having that seat of interest in me
0: but making breakfast cereal is a long way from uh, you're the girl that paints on people
1: that is a very long way i mean also having a disco kitchen is a long way from
0: that girl it that is on people so the thing that your mentor warned you against are you now able to do many many different things at once but not be spread. So I think like how, how have you been able to broaden your ability to express w- without being detrimental to the work you're making?
1: Oh, it's totally detrimental to the work I'm <laughs> making. <laughs> like I have, I have no sense of balance. It's like, um, I'm working on like 30 different projects right now. Uh, like, you know, the fun house, I have this idea for a book of magic spells. I'm working on, um, bath toys. I'm making these giant like pyramid shaped blocks, which you can see in my living room in a moment. Um, I'm working with some magicians on projects and I really do need to learn how to just like stop having fun and to start focusing.
0: Well, you saw what happened when you got two straight months of working on only one thing when you focused all of that energy onto one outcome.
1: That's true. And I guess when I look at like the two months I spent focusing straight on that um, tessellating shape puzzle, like I got a lot done on that. But I mean, like. Charles and Ray Eames are some of my favorite designers, and one of their quotes is, eventually everything connects. And I have no idea what, you know, this little thing I'm doing today, how that might inform the way I look at things a year from now. I might not even be able to point to that specific event as what caused it, but it will have planted those seeds.
0: I got given the book about those two for my birthday this year. Oh,
1: they're so inspiring.
0: Their uh, their studio is just down in Washington, right near my house, down in Venice. Oh, I have to go to that. That's where it was, yeah. Where it was unbelievable, they would just they built this thing. Or my favorite thing, besides the recliner, they built a thing which was, um, it was this gigantic shell-shaped wooden. It must have been maybe fifteen or sixteen feet tall, and uh, it, was, it was basically like the front half of a of a Pacific Island canoe. All right, mm-hmm. so it's that shape, yeah. and you would stand in it, and someone on the other side of the factory would whisper, and you could hear them. Mm. What's that thing? Oh, that is so cool. They built it out of wood. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah, nuts. Like, that's what inspires me and, so and much. And they're
0: so good-looking. <laughs> Charles and Ray Eames, are just beautiful people, too. It's, it's, well, it's,
1: they've, it's like, historic. worked on everything. And, like, when I was really interested in furniture design in college, I got super obsessed with them. And so yeah. now it's, like, well, everything eventually does connect because now I'm looking back into, like, industrial design and yeah. creating, you know, these quirky new things like that.
0: Well, mate, that, that's the thing that a lot of people don't realize, that – even, yes, even that Ikea coffee cup that we all have or even the expedite the, the 12 by 12 bookcase that is in 600 million homes around the world. Wow. Even that is... I
1: mean, they also made that's, like...
0: That's, that's, that's incredible. That's, that's amazing.
1: And they made furniture, but they also made like toys. They made like science videos. They made like international expositions. Yeah. Or, like,
0: If you've never seen The Power of 10, the Ray, the Ray and Charles Ames Power of 10, I think they made it for IBM. Amazing, amazing film. It's only seven minutes long or ten minutes long. It might be ten minutes long.
1: Have the, like, Charles and Ray uh, Eames DVD box set if you want to borrow it. What? And
0: don't ever lend me anything. It doesn't come back. (laughs) So I'd like to talk about the the business of art. A lot of people may not understand what it takes to be someone who pays their rent, buys their groceries, pays their phone bill, pays for their vacation, saves money by being an artist, you know, there's this idea that you're either the starving artist or you only fly private. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's kind of the only thing that people might, when I think of art, you know, there's, there's, you know, and often the idea that artists only ever, their work only ever really makes money once they're dead because then there's never really going to be any more. Yeah, and, and that
1: there's like a force limit in the yeah, supply.
0: Yeah. So how much of your day is hustle?
1: Yeah. Well, so when I first started, I um, was like, okay, I want to be an artist. I want to, like, push this, like, full steam ahead. Like, I don't want to have this career not turn out and then have regrets that, you know, well, maybe if I'd worked a little harder or if I'd been more business savvy, I could have made it. So I made it my job to not only, like, make art, but learn what it meant to be an artist. So I went to um, all the galleries in Washington, D.C. I wrote down all the names of the artists I saw exhibited. And then, you know, checked out their websites. And then I sent them all emails saying like, hey, I'm like an artist trying to figure out what it means to be an artist. I'd love to hear more about your art practice and how you came to do what you do now. And like pretty much every single person I emailed got back to me and said like, yes, I'd love to get coffee and, you know, share with you my experiences. And I would sit there and like ask them these really hard questions they'd answer. They do 95% of the talking and I take notes and I learned so much. And then I would ask them to, um, if they knew other artists that might have like good answers for me. And so I made it like my job for like one of like pretty much a full month to just get coffee. I'd have like four coffee dates a day and I'd have them at coffee shops across the street from each other. So I would never like have an awkward artist coming in while I was still talking with someone, but I could quickly run between meetings and I would get there early and just get a cup of I'd ask for a coffee cup with just water in it and so then when they arrived they'd be like oh hey you already have coffee let me go get some so I never had to pay money um and I got amazing advice during that time which like it it was like going to art business school
0: um ah that's so awesome to hear that you did that so I'm sure all out of those people there was common threads what was the what were the common threads that they told you
1: yeah um I mean, you know, they were saying, like, you know, don't get discouraged if people don't initially catch on to your art. And they were talking about their experiences of, like, rejection and how they coped with it. Um, they were telling me, too, that mostly, you know, the way it works is that, like, a gallery um, finds their new artists through artists that they currently represent. So they'll ask them, like, do you know other artists who you think would be a good fit for the gallery? They told me, you know, don't walk into a gallery with my portfolio and demand to have them look at it because they won't. And, um, so it was like my scrappy self would have thought like, oh, I just like, if they see my art then they'll understand, I'll just walk in there with it. Um, but I learned other ways to do it except for when I had that exhibit with the man on the Metro, I just walked into the gallery with my artwork.
0: <laughs> what did they, what did you learn from these people about what it is to face rejection? Because a lot of what you're in is mm, not, like that.
1: Yeah. Um, let me remember back to this. And a lot of them, you know, talk about having second jobs and they're saying, you know, if you're going to have a second job, have it be something that doesn't leave you exhausted at the end of the day. So that like when you can approach your artwork, you're not like feeling down. You're like feeling energized and ready to go from doing something cool at work or something. Um,
0: well, how about you? What do you how do you face rejection Ooh. when it comes to your work?
1: Yeah. Let me think about that. I'm really persistent. I don't really take no for an answer in a lot of things. Um, And so I'll try to find a way that, well, if I just keep working harder, maybe it will happen. Um, Oftentimes it really annoys the people who say no because I keep saying it's like I'll apply for an artist residency program or something and they'll reject me. And then I'll send them an email afterwards saying, like, thank you for taking the time to look at my application. How can I make it stronger for next year? And then I'll send them another email saying like closer to when the residency program was supposed to start saying like, if you have any open spaces, I want you to know that I'm still interested, you know, no response or whatever. And then when I apply the next, I just apply the next year again and say, thank you again for looking at my application last year. Here's my new application.
0: And has that worked out?
1: Yeah. Lots (laughs) and lots of (laughs) follow-up.
0: That's, 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 that's huge. Like just how much you, how much you've championed yourself. It's almost as if there's two people that work here. Well, my
1: background in politics, like, really (laughs) helped because, like, you know, I was working on the Obama campaign doing press. So I learned these skills about, like, you know, press. I mean, getting, like, media and stuff. Um, But it's funny because I actually didn't set off the initial, like, pebble that got the whole thing rolling with um, my art going viral on the Internet. That was, like, a complete fluke.
0: You just, just woke up one day. How did that start?
1: Um, it was pretty much like that. There was this blog called Kotkey.org, K-O-T-T-K-E-Y. No, K-O-T-T-K-E.org. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd never heard of it before. And um, they had done a blog post on body painting. And then someone in the comments from Washington, D.C., who had seen my artwork because, you know, I was networking all throughout D.C., had in the comments wrote, like, oh, if you like body painting, you should check out Alexa's work and just had a link to my website. It was, like, a very short comment and then the next day the blog ran a photo of my artwork in like a 30 word caption or something saying like this isn't a painting it's a real person check out alexamead.com. um and then from there it went completely viral i had like 30,000 views that day whereas like all the other days combined i'd had like seven views since my website had been up um you know servers crashed i was getting phone calls like off the hook tons of emails coming in um I'd had my phone number on the website. And so like I was getting people calling from like Abu Dhabi who like didn't really speak English, wanting to congratulate me at like three in the morning. Um, I had like some guy in California who I think was high, like calling me like, hey, and I was like, hello. And he was like, just wanted to say, I, I like your art. And I was like, okay, thanks anything else like he just kept me on the line forever not saying anything he said maybe like 30 words over the course of like 25 minutes and I couldn't bring myself to like just hang up on him and
0: it was really creepy so off that I took my phone number off the website okay yeah but your publicity background must have recognized ah there's something happening here I better jump on this wave
1: exactly yeah so um I got like tons of requests like all of a sudden like you know, Playboy Russia wanted to fly me out to like paint naked women in Russia. And I was like, okay, well, that's, I don't do that type of body art. Um, And I got asked to do beer commercials, pencil commercials, like music videos. And I decided like, you know, I'm really new as an artist. I'm still developing my voice. Like I need to just like slow down for a second. Like I'll try to use this momentum to, you know, get like more work in the fine art world rather than do these other really seductive projects. Um, So I pretty much said no to, like, everything that came my way.
0: But you got to eight.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I know, but I was, it was terrified. I mean, I was in, like, this big no phase. And um, I was really lucky that I was able to actually leverage that, like, week of internet meme dumb into, like, a full-time, like, long-time fine art career. Um, from that exposure, I was able to get an exhibit at the Saatchi Gallery in London, and like, I, I'm so thankful because I think normally the internet doesn't make fine art into a thing as much as commercial art.
0: What is, So there's a few things, there's a few factors that are important when it comes to art. My, uh, I, I, I used to live with a, a friend of mine and her two kids, and she is a, she's an artist. And we were talking about my photography and what it would be to, to sell my photography. And I said, well, she's, I showed her some pictures. She goes, yeah, you could totally sell that. I said, well, what do I do now? She goes, you got to remember, man, art is just an agreement. It's just an agreement. People will agree, yes, that thing is worth $47,000 and that thing is worth $47 in a market. It's how you tell the story. So how does that kind of idea come into Coming to your work,
1: yeah. When I was first trying to figure out like what should be the format that I sell my artwork in, because it's a live person and I can't sell that, um, an art gallery told me that I should do limited edition photo prints. Keep the edition size; it's very small, at seven, and you know, charge this much per print. And I was like, okay. And so I set the edition size on like you know, the man on the metro, uh, all these like really big early works of mine at edition size of seven. And then when my stuff went crazy on the internet, I sold, like, five out of seven of all of those at a somewhat low price. And now the remaining ones are very rare and, as a result, incredibly expensive. And it really kills me because, like, I don't want to let go of them. I don't want to sell them. But I also don't like the idea that, like, to somebody else who, like, this picture means a lot to them that they're not able to obtain it because it's just out of their price range. Like you have to be mega wealthy to get it. And that's not necessarily the ethos I want to have with my art. But with the limited nature of editions, like I'm kind of in that bind and I can't put out like posters of it or anything because when I say only seven will be made, that means I, you know, I can't make more than seven.
0: Does part of you... Does part of you want to 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 want to buck that? I mean, like, I'm able to appreciate your art on the screen of my computer. Like, there was a yeah. time when... You wouldn't
1: was, be able to have access. Not right. at
0: all. And I, I think about the, the Rijksmuseum in, um, in the Netherlands mm-hmm. that have made all of their old master's work available free of any IP restrictions whatsoever. Really? Yeah, because the, the, their idea is... You used to be only able to see the Van Gogh if you came and stood in the same room as the painting. There was no ability to reproduce this. This is why galleries Uh were so astonishing. Now you can see this stuff anywhere. They're like, we would rather you go put this Rembrandt on a T-shirt and sell that T-shirt and have this Rembrandt be on 10,000 T-shirts that are for sale at Costco, then that's 10,000 more people than would otherwise have seen it. So they're very much about... like. Get it, take it away. Take it, take it take, really it, take it, That's really interesting. It, it.
1: And, you know, that's like I've been feeling this shift more towards that direction recently because when I first started out, um, like with getting exposure and, you know, internet stardom, the galleries that wanted to work with me, they felt this weird tension where, like, they found me through the internet. So they saw the internet was good for art. But they wanted to maintain the feeling of exclusivity of their artists. And so this gallery that I signed on with early on They told me that I had to um, take down, like, 70% of the artwork from my website because, you know, they didn't want people to see such early works that they didn't think were very good. And um, they didn't want me to be contacting anyone via Facebook because they looked down on social media. Um, And it was very much about maintaining this air of exclusivity of the art that, no, it's not for you. It's for these other people who we've said are special. And that's totally... Against, like, what I think art should stand for, that gallery has since went out of business. <laughs>
0: yeah, <You know? laughs> it's it's, full, it's totally changing. I was uh speaking with an Australian artist of in, enormous repute. There's a guy by the name of Jasper Knight. I was speaking to him the other day, and he was telling me about uh, he, he's a gallerist, he has two gallery, three galleries, one of them's in Singapore, I think the other two are in Australia. He was saying that he's got uh, and he mentors a lot of young artists, he's got dealers screaming down the phone at his young artists going. What the fuck are you doing? Putting a photo of an empty canvas on Instagram at 10pm and then at 1am, the finished work going, all done. I can't sell that for 50 grand. <laughs> you know, the story has got to be you can't put progress pics on Instagram, this, this dealer was screaming at this guy, because the person, the buyer wants to go, so much work has gone into
1: Like this. it interferes with the mythology of the work, like the yeah. origin story, the, which isn't even a true story. It's just a myth.
0: The, like, like the art is an agreement. It's a story it, of, when it comes to value of, of the thing. It, it's, it's like where's the, where, this dealer was complaining that it's blowing his ability to sell Sorry, I'm also really affected by the Keene movie. I just, went and saw, I just went and saw Big Eyes by Tim Burton. It's about Margaret Keane, the woman who makes the kids with the big eyes. And the whole film revolves around the husband who took the credit for all the work because she couldn't really sell very well. She was a very, very shy person. And he was so flamboyant and he told so great, colourful stories. People wanted to believe that I'm painting these kids, these kids with the big eyes that were the orphans I saw after World War II when I was travelling through Europe and people wanted to believe these stories. So they bought wow. the paintings.
1: Did the wife know that her husband was going to these great lands?
0: Absolutely. She was compl- she, she. it was almost she was in, a, in an emotionally abusive relationship that she could not escape from. Wow. She could not escape from because there's millions of dollars coming in.
1: And was she able to, like, get a cut of that herself or...?
0: Been, well, I won't spoil the film, but... Okay. Yeah. He went oh, to man. his he went to his grave claiming that he painted them. Really? Because he couldn't bear to... He couldn't bear to admit that he had lied the whole time. Wow. Heavy, man. It's a heavy, heavy tale. Yeah, but having seen that movie before I came here, it was very much like, oh, yeah, it's, <laughs> you know... Um, so it's, it sounds to me, though, that, that the business of art through things like the internet, through things like Instagram, the business of art, and it's got to be a business because you've got to keep the lights on. You've got to keep a roof over your head. Yeah. The business of art is changing very, very rapidly. Where do you see it going?
1: Ooh. I mean, everything I feel like is moving towards, like, decentralization, cutting out the middleman. So I'm not really sure what role a traditional gallery is going to have in, you know, the career of a fine artist. Is a lot of artists they need a gallery as a person who gets them the clients, who gets them the exposure, who gets them the press. But now an artist puts something on Instagram, a journalist sees it, they ask the artist if they can write a story, they get press. Someone sees that article, contacts the artist directly, buys a piece of artwork, and like all of a sudden, it seems like the artist is able to take care of a lot of the things themselves. So let's okay, here's like, a- why should you give the gallery a fifty percent cut?
0: Exactly. So this is the startup that we can build. Uh, <laughs> it's it's like the eBay of fine art, essentially. Is yeah. there something that exists like that yet? I
1: think there is. Um, there's actually a lot of sites that are, like, that sell fine art and limited edition prints and right. those things. Um, I've stayed away from them because I should know more about them, I suppose. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with them. I just I haven't done my research or homework on it. And I get tons of people contacting me wanting to just buy artwork directly you find that working with the gallery, I do make a lot more sales. And so like even though they're getting a 50% cut, it's still I'm coming out of the head working with the gallery.
0: Got it. So we're we're coming we're coming towards the end of this, but but I do want to do want to ask you like in the same way that a musician can hear harmony and cadence in the the Doppler effect of a car approaching and leaving a leaving and the melody of a magpie's call in the morning whereas another person goes i just heard a car i heard a bird yeah how do you see the world
1: yeah i i get totally charmed by like little things i look out that i need to take a second look at because i just like didn't because i misread it perceptually the first time and that goes to to like my inspiration for a lot of optical illusions is like being like wait when you walk by um Or if you're inside of a restaurant and they have the name painted on the glass, then when you look at it from the reverse side, it's like as if it's backwards in a mirror, but it's just like the backside of it. It's like through the looking glass. And then I might take that the idea to my welcome sign, which I have written backwards that you read reflected in a mirror. And so when I just see little things like that, I can't help but stop and like gape at them.
0: How could people, you know, because a lot of people might be just, I know a lot of people do, you know, we walk through with our a our, 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 our pre-programmed little mini uh, patterns of behaviour. This is what I do when I open my front door. This is what I do where I put my keys. This is what I do, and we we can drive home not even realizing we stopped at seven red lights and changed gears if we're driving manual long way because we're a total autopilot. How can people, in your opinion, try and see the world a little more like you?
1: I think it's really nice to be able to have ways to express yourself creatively that have like a really low barrier to entry where it's not like, okay, when I get home from work today, I'm going to make a painting. It's like, Oh, I have some pipe cleaners. What can I make with that? Um, There's like low pressure to make something amazing that you'll ever want to, you know, hold on to Um, like something that it's just comes out of like tinkering and playing. And then by just getting yourself moving in that small way, you're able to kind of access these larger things you wouldn't have otherwise been able to dive into.
0: What about just observing the world?
1: And observing is, you know, a big part of it. I mean, everyone has their own interpretive lens. But I mean I can't tell someone how to look through their own eyes. And part of what makes us all unique as, you know, accountants or artists is that
0: But your work challenges approach, your work challenges people. It challenges their perception. Yeah. That's, that's, that was the kicker of the headline of the first article written about you. This is not uh, a painting. This is a photograph. Right. All right. So you instantly are challenging the perception. So you, in a way, you are telling people, hey, you look at the world a little differently.
1: That is a very good point. Yeah. I mean, I like just kind of like stopping and looking at those things I would have otherwise missed. And I think there's so much beauty to be found in that.
0: So what if people find themselves at a similar junction in life? Like you did with regards to work or education or or relationship.
1: When I decided I was going to be an artist, I decided like the most important thing is that I really put my all into this because like if, you know, I end up broke and unhappy and it doesn't turn out, I don't want it to be because I said like, I should have done this or like, you know, if only I tried harder, or like maybe I didn't want it enough. Like, I just said that I was going to, like, commit to it. I was going to go full force. I wanted it enough, and I was going to make sure that my actions reinforced that. Um, And so I, you know, I made it my job to learn what it meant to be an artist by talking to, like, hundreds of other artists, spending time really focusing in the studio, and then also, you know, still playing a little bit on the side. But um, it's, it's... The worst thing is when you lie to yourself about how hard you're working on making your dream come true and it's really easy to do that because no one else is going to hold you accountable so it's really easy not to hold yourself accountable too especially when it comes to something like a dream you don't have a boss you don't have anyone else directing you
0: i certainly hope that you are able to make it happen as big as you see it inside your head
1: yeah. well thank you it's been a joy talking with you today <laughs>
0: We didn't even have to talk about the famous magician magician guy.
1: Oh, yeah, no. (laughs) Oh, I mean.
0: We'll talk about that another time. Okay. No, no, no. This was really good. And now I'm going to take your photograph.
1: All right, and get a full tour of the funhouse.
0: Get a full tour of the funhouse with time to spare. All right, thank you, Alexa. So that was Alexa Mead. You can find her on Twitter at Alexa Mead, M-E-A-D-E, art, A-R-T, Alexa Mead art. Also find her remarkable work, alexaneed.com. Let her know you heard her. Let her know on Twitter that you heard her here. And if I could ask you of anything this week, please go to the iTunes store, rate and comment on the show. Ratings and comments really help the rankings, really helps the show, really helps me. Um, I do this show for free. I'm grateful to do it for you for free. That's the only thing I would ask you to do. All that and show someone who doesn't know how to use podcasts how to use podcasts. Just grab their phone, load one up let them listen to it and then boom you've changed their life how exciting so do email me if you need anything through the week send Osheremail email at gmail.com take care of yourself this week i'm going back to work uh, on uh, some tv so i'm going in front of the scenes after my few months behind the scenes i'm getting back out in front of the camera which is nice so i've shaved that's exciting so I'm very, I'm, look, I'm really, really grateful to be back in Sydney and grateful to be working back with a great team of people and it's a really creative environment and we have fun and we make a great show that a lot of people enjoy. So, I mean, what more could you want? To look after yourself this week, check for cyclists, please, when you open your car door. Be kind, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. And I will talk to you next week.